their steady move towards more progressive ideals down the line and to that side of things does say to me that there is a conflict within the creation team. So And or the network's like gauging of public reception and what will fly and being more or less permissive because of that. Unramblings, our podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Faithix. And I'm Charlene. And this week we're going to be talking about The Legend of Korra. We did an episode on Avatar The Last Airbender a couple of months back. So this one is going to be a sort of a sequel episode to that and will be a little bit different from stuff we have done in the past because we're going to be referring back to Avatar a bit and sort of talking about it in relation to that. It'll be a little bit like the episode we actually just did on Doctor Sleep in relation to The Shining. We will obviously therefore be spoiling all of The Legend of Korra and probably a decent chunk of Avatar The Last Airbender as well. In an ideal world, I would recommend listening to the Avatar The Last Airbender episode first, but it's not a necessity. If we bring things up, we'll make sure we're covering the relevant stuff for that. If we have any other more specific spoiler warnings for other things, we'll drop those in right here, along with any content warnings. Hello! We're fairly light on spoiler warnings this time. Uh, We make a vague reference to the end of Angel, uh, a couple of relationships in Buffy, a little bit of stuff about Veronica Mars. It's all fairly surface level. There's a couple of things about relationships in Grey's Anatomy as well. We did just want to drop a note in here as well to say that we're just talking about the TV series for Legend of Korra and for Avatar The Last Airbender. We know that there are books and graphic novels. We're not really talking about those because they weren't part of the original story that was told to audiences through the shows. Uh, We make a couple of references to things that we do know exist in there, but if something from those counteracts something that we say here... We'd love to hear about it, but we do acknowledge that that wasn't part of the original story as it was first told. As far as content warnings, we don't really have much there either. We do discuss some of the trauma that happens to Korra in season three and the recovery in season four. And so maybe post-traumatic stress and things like that. But there's not really anything else. Welcome back. Okay, so we'll get a quick summary of the work. So Legend of Korra follows, surprisingly... The new Avatar Korra. It's set 80 years after the events of the Avatar TV series, and it explores sort of her coming into her own as an Avatar, whereas the original series explored gaining the mastery of all the different elements. Here, she's really got most of that very early on, and then it's much more about her personal journey. See, I don't know how much a plot summary makes sense. We're going to talk about the seasonality of it later. Mm hmm. Summarizing it is a little bit difficult because the plot changes considerably from season to season and there is sort of a like main big bad that things are focused on each season, but the overarching through line is Korra kind of developing as an avatar, learning to kind of represent the interests of the people and eventually ends up being the end of the first line of avatars and the beginning of a new line of avatars and that ends up coming along with a lot of other changes in the world. And so it's kind of following that as that as that happens. Yeah. So we might just leave that as the plot summary. So many disparate things happen if throughout the series that I mean I'm assuming that if you've if you're listening to this then you've seen it probably fairly recently. But anyway. 
I wouldn't assume that. A lot of the time people listen to stuff that's about things they haven't watched or read or whatever. Yeah, that's point. I mean, multiple people have said they listen to this and then maybe go and watch it afterwards. So mm -hmm. Use it as a way of creating a reading list. Anyway, okay. Well, we'll just get into it. So I think the first thing to talk about is sort of what we were just mentioning there, which is the storytelling in this is very different to in Avatar The Last Airbender in that we get four very individual seasons here. Avatar, we see it's broken down by the books or the elements, but it's each season leads to the next with a strong through line narrative. When you watch the first two episodes, you know what's going to happen at the end of season three. So I think the best place to start is with that sort of season structure that the show has for the storytelling. In Avatar The Last Airbender, we get the three seasons that are very much one long narrative rather than sort of individual broken up segments as much. While each season has a focus on an element, you know where you're going to end up at the end of season three at the start of season one. I don't think that's at all true for Korra. Each season contains a full and complete story and there'll be references across season lines, but mostly there's small changes in the world or big changes in the world. In a lot of ways, the storytelling in Korra is a lot more similar to things like Veronica Mars and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where you're following this strong female character as life kind of keeps crashing and challenging her over and over again, and she has to learn and develop different skills and occasionally be brought really low um, by circumstances as they defeat greater and greater challenges. And so I think that it's kind of easier to see that sort of structure here than something that's more cohesive like in Avatar. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it's interesting you bring those up. And I mean, this is sort of... No, I suppose this was a few years after Veronica Mars finished, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that this was more like 2012 yeah. to 2015 or 2014, something like that. Yeah. And um, Veronica Mars was earlier, like in, I want to say, like 2006 or something. Yeah. There's a lot that I can sort of try and read into the fact that the seasons are done differently like this. I know with Avatar, it feels like they set out with a very specific story to tell. Mm -hmm. They knew how long it was going to take and then they told it, which speaks to a certain level of confidence about how much time they'd have to work on it. Korra feels much more like a show that is worried it won't get another season. Yeah, that does seem to have influenced some of the structure. And it's, again, similar to other stuff. I think like Buffy and Veronica Mars and a lot of other shows at those points in time were constrained in that way. A lot of shows are these days. Yeah. Each season is trying to make sure that it doesn't get cut off on a big cliffhanger. But still has enough going on to be interesting to bring people back if they do get renewed. It's a delicate balance. I think that you could stop watching at the end of seasons one, two, or three and be like, yeah, that's that's the end of the show. And I think even at the end of season four, there's room for them to tell more story if they wanted to. They're certainly sort of setting up the idea of another plot there. Yeah, like the adventures of Korra and Asami in the spirit world. Which we'll come back to, but I would watch that show mm -hmm. if they made it now. We'll come back to it. I think that we have to acknowledge the limitation of these sort of external media influenced factors, like structural factors of the show being made to like contextualize the story because there are a lot of weird factors that 
did constrain Legend of Korra as it was being made and released. Like, I know they kind of stopped airing new episodes of season three on Nickelodeon, only released them online, and then later on released the rest of the season on TV, like, after it was finished. It's very weird. After that season was finished. So they definitely were imposing a lot of strange constraints on, like, accessibility and timing. And apparently, like, before that point... They were doing the same kind of thing that like Cartoon Network did with Steven Universe, where they're you know releasing new episodes in a weird and unpredictable schedule. That's sort of like weird chunks of program episodes that makes it very hard to build and maintain an audience. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where if a network or someone in the network kind of doesn't like the show, they'll do that. Like they don't want to put the resources into it. I know that like the original run of Doctor Who, I think ended up getting taken off the air because they changed when it was aired multiple times across a season and then went, well, look, no one's watching it, so... Yeah, exactly. And that's before streaming and things, and you go and look it up. It does sound as though it might have backfired with this. It doesn't sound like it was their intent for it to be the success of streaming, but I think it did actually do very well online. It did, and that was, I think, part of why it ended up being able to persist past season three. Like, I think that kind of shenanigans that were pulled with season three were kind of an intention of like, oh, well, no one's watching this because we've been kind of shitty about airing it in any sort of predictable way. So we can have an excuse, as you say, of low turnout or low, you know, low watch hours to not renew it. But then when it did have a big following online, they were like, okay, well, I guess... We will do a season four and conclude this narrative. Yeah, I do sort of respect the storytelling delicacy for being able to bring each season to a close without closing out the story. They do manage to avoid any moment of like ending up with the end of Angel or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, the end of Angel. Yeah, it's weird because they also avoid like there's a trap you can fall into with stuff like this, though, and they kind of sometimes fall into it, but they don't always, where your show ends up hinging its new season plot on, like, unintended consequences from the way we resolved the last season, and that definitely happens with the later seasons. It doesn't happen with the first season. The plot of season two is not because they defeated Amon and the Equalist movement. So there's that, but then, like, it seems... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like most of the other plots are directly unintended consequences of the previous season. So like the end of season two, you have the spirit portals open and you have the the release of airbending powers randomly in the population, which includes a member of the Red Lotus who's in prison, which enables him to break out and then break out all of his friends. And then they're the big bads for that season. And that's also a central conflict or not conflict, but a central plot point of that season is also trying to wrangle all the new airbenders so it's very much oh we did this thing at the end of last season it seems like it was probably the best outcome at the time but now we've got to deal with the consequences and then at the end of defeating the red lotus they managed to rescue Korra, but the big problem is that now she's poisoned because of the outcome of that well that one's a little bit strange because i think the even bigger thing from that is the rise of kuvira yeah, that's Which is true. filling the void of there not being an Earth Monarch anymore. Yeah. Um, but they sort of start to set it up as an intended thing. And it's the unintended consequences of something the villain does. Yeah. But- with, with that, it's, it is more artfully done, I, I would say. Like, it's not as 
how you use the word artful. I mean, okay. I kind of get the feeling that they got told they'd get a season four around 80% of the way through season three. And they were like, oh shit, well, there's this person called Kuvira and they'll be important later. And she appears in two scenes and is named and made to seem very important that hasn't been brought up at any point before. Yeah, I do remember you calling that out when she's introduced of like, this is something that was put in because she's going to be important in season four. And you were very correct about that. Okay, so maybe artful's not the best word, but they do weave it in a bit more fluidly in that it is a more complicated downstream set of uh, circumstances that are influenced by the things that happened before in a way that history actually works. It felt less heavy-handed or less like Terry Goodkind, you know, the way that it was done in season like three to four. I'm not terribly familiar with Terry Goodkind's work and I feel you just did a drive-by on him and I don't know why. Oh, I, I very much did. So I think that that unintended consequences does bring us into one of the points we want to talk about and i want to put a disclaimer here we enjoyed cora it's not as good as avatar and it has some problems and we're going to talk a little bit about the problems but we are not only going to talk about that this isn't going to be us moving into shitting on it for the next rest of the episode but we are going to criticize it a little bit now which i'm sure some people will be upset about but it needs to happen there's some very strange things going on with the messaging in these seasons and it feels like there's different hands at the wheel trying to do different things. When we started watching Cora, it was still at a point when anti-police protests were the only thing on the news. There's still a thing. It's just now overshadowed by other news. Getting into season one where you're shown this equalist movement who feel that it's unfair that only the benders have power in society and non-benders are put down for not having that ability. Rings a little bit strange when Korra starts beating up the Equalists and they're shown as the baddies for the whole series. Yeah, we very much kept having this conversation when we watched the first season of like, but the the non-bending community have a lot of really valid points. Like there is no non-bender representation in like the governing council. That's fucked up. What the hell? Like it starts off with this council that's Tenzin, the remaining adult airbender in the world who's, I guess, representing the Air Nation. And there's a representative from the from one of the water tribes who is a waterbender. And there's a representative from the Fire Nation who you can infer is a firebender given the concerns of the people who are upset that there's no non-benders in the council and a representative from the Earth Nation. And yeah, if this is supposed to be a city that is supposed to have like a representative council people then you should have people to represent probably republic city specifically honestly if not just the other nations from the surrounding community it makes sense and i don't see why it's a problem that they want that and their other concerns are like we get pushed around by the bending community and all the police are metal benders and like we get pushed around by them and that's not okay and it's not <laughs> that's right that's not okay and like you're watching this and going, well, these seem like valid complaints. And then Aman comes on the scene and he's using some very violent tactics and he's removing bending power. And you can say those are ag overly aggressive means and things, but we've been watching riots in the street from Black Lives Matter. And it comes down to if you ignore people and shit on people for long enough, they'll use the only weapon they have in their arsenal. Yeah. 
I mean, and it does, you know, turn out Amon is a bad guy. He is leading this movement under false pretenses. He is a waterbender using, like, the chi manipulation abilities with that to block people's bending. So he's lying to his followers. But that base was there for a reason. And that sounds familiar, I think, to a lot of us. It's not that all of those people were idiots getting taken in by this charismatic fascist type person. That person was hearing and responding to concerns that no one had taken seriously for too long. And there's a part of me that says, well, maybe we're just seeing it through the lens of today. But these problems didn't come up overnight. These issues existed eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And this message where Cora effectively is a cop. A mm-hmm. later season does cast one of the characters as a cop. So it's all kind of troubling. Yeah, she's very much on the side of the status quo during that season, trying to preserve the institutions of power that already exist. And through that conflict, they do change. And equalists do have a representation in the government, or at least non-bending uh, citizens have representation in the government and Republic City specifically, as opposed to the other element allied nations have representation but that's mentioned sort of offhandedly in the later season as though people complained to the writers and were like hey but it's not cool that the benders are getting shit on in this society and have no representation in the government and then they're like oh no no no, no. it's okay once we took down Amman, we totally fixed all of that and now there's no institutional discrimination against that community anymore and they totally have representation in the government it's fine it's fine yeah, well, I think the government is fully non-bending from what we see. But yeah, it's not mentioned at the end of the season. If you stopped watching at the end of season one, if they hadn't been renewed, they take down Amman and then they go, right, job done. We've defeated the equalist movement. No one wants equality anymore. Good job, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's it- not like anyone has uh, said anything about trying to actually treat non-bending citizens equally or anything. Yeah. And it's very strange comparing that to some of the messages in the first series in Avatar. It kind of makes me wonder whether there's an element of showrunners versus networks at work where what they want to do is more progressive and what they're allowed to do is more conservative. Yeah. But there definitely needed to be a, a scene in season one where they were like, but they had some valid points and we do need to change the way that things are. Yeah. It's weird because the Equalist movement is sort of like, I don't know, it has a lot of similarities to both Black Lives Matter and somehow also Trump supporters in different ways. In like the being taken in by this charismatic leader who's lying to them and manipulating them and feeding into their feelings of being oppressed, except they're actually oppressed, which I have more to do more in line with the Black Lives Matter uprisings. They're actually being treated as second-class citizens. So, like, there's this interesting interaction I'm seeing there. Does that make any sense? I'm not sure that that's a fair analogy. Just because Aman is doing what he says he's doing the most of the time. Mm, That's true. Like, he has an underhanded motive for down the line. Yeah. But... It's really about him wanting power. I mean, that's what I'm saying, like, in terms of... He's manipulating this community that does have valid concerns. He's using their state of being sick of being oppressed to further his own political ambitions. But I don't think the analogy to Trump supporters is fair because Aman's actions all back up what he's saying. That's true. So, which is not the case with Trump. 
Wouldn't it be nice when we don't have to think about him in a couple of months? So nice. I really hope we don't have to think about him anymore in a few months. Yeah, okay. Maybe I'm being optimistic. But it's sort of something that we see continue throughout. Yeah, you have pretty much the same problem with the Red Lotus. Yeah, they're saying no individual people should have all of this power. The Avatar shouldn't have so much power and exist and be able to subjugate people. There shouldn't be these individual world leaders who have so much control. And at the end of the series, they're taken down and shown to be the bad guys. Season four shows us Korra has abdicated her responsibilities for three years and nothing terrible has happened. At the end, she leaves to travel in the spirit world and that seems fine. And like, we have the airbenders taking over as a collective of people who are working for the greater good. And you have Prince Wu deciding not to be a king at the end and instead sit down and have like smaller local government and not have one person with huge power. So they're the villains for all of season three. Their methods are shown to be evil. But when you get to the end of season four, those are the exact ideals that are being put into place. Yeah, it's really interesting, especially when in Avatar, we get very clear indications of like the horrific levels of social stratification and inequality, particularly in the Earth Kingdom. And it's the Earth Kingdom queen who ends up getting killed by the Red Lotus. So you see this setup of like, this is a monarchy that has permitted there to be horrible inequality in their community and has not been taking care of everyone get taken out by these people who are like, this is why we don't concentrate power in the hands of the few who are out of touch from the needs of their people. The people should have a say in the way that they are governed in the way that their lives are structured. And yeah, it is shown that their method of, well, let's just kill all the rulers and see what happens and let the people decide. But it is also kind of a comeuppance for a ruler who is never cast in a positive light at all. The queen of the Earth Kingdom is shown to be like horrible. Yeah. It, it really sends a very mixed message. Well, then in um, season two, which we jumped over, you have Unalak is saying, well, these terrible things are happening because we've lost connection with the spirit world and the spirits and we need to reestablish that. And he goes a bit further and has the whole, like, I'm going to be the anti-Avatar thing. But at the end of season two, beginning of season three, the message is we need to coexist with the spirits and, like, work together and be unified Yeah. in the way that he wanted. Except and- without all the corruption of methods that he wanted, where he rigged the leadership of the tribes and stuff. Right. And I remember us having a lot of problems with season two for... There's a lot of discussion, like, with the back in the first Avatar stuff, and Mm -hmm. there's the two, there's the good and evil spirits whose names escape me, unfortunately. Well, they're more order and chaos, it seems. I forget their names. Yeah. There's a lot of importance, though, put on the idea of balance in a lot of those conversations, but what we get is not balance. It's locking away chaos entirely. Mm -hmm. It's the life without death issue yeah and it does seem the way that that's set up like having the avatar is probably a bad thing you shouldn't have an avatar you should have both of those spirits holding each other in check so that the world has a proportionate level of order and chaos yeah you keep putting things in order but entropy also keeps working to disassemble any order and it's kind of a never-ending thing but again you have like this 
voice throughout the season two who's saying balance is important, balance is important, but then the fight at the end is, ah, get rid of one of those things, it's fine. Well, it is clarified that like, it's, you can't get rid of it. Like the right. the destroyed whatever version of that dark spirit is part of Korra now. It's just not a dominant form, but it will grow over time. And like that's sort of the whole thing is that it will grow to be able to overpower the order spirit that the Avatar has. But they'll worry about that in 10,000 years. But they'll worry about that in 10,000 years. Exactly. At the next harmonic convergence or whatever. Yeah, they there is definitely, the, again, the similar sort of mixed message where, like, if you look at the consequences and outcomes of the whole Unalak anti-Avatar thing, it basically holds up all of the arguments he was making, and it's just the methods again that were the problem. It's like, yeah, these are real issues, but you shouldn't seize power by underhanded means to accomplish them, apparently, unless you're the Avatar, in which case it's fine. Well, yes, in which case... if. You don't have to because people already assume that you're in charge. Yeah, pretty much. Season four, like, the message is more coherent. They're sort of spending all their time telling us why the ideals for the season three baddies were good. So Kuvera is possibly the most cartoonishly villainous of them. She I know. is Unalak's just... pretty bad. Okay, yeah. But she is so clearly tied to being like a fascist dictator. Mm-hmm. Like she's called the great uniter. People yeah. bow down to her to do things. And she exploits the weakness of small villages. And like Bolin is even in a position where he's like, this doesn't necessarily seem right eventually. Yeah. I mean, Kuvira is very much like a Stalin stand-in. Yeah. More so even than a Hitler stand-in. Yeah. Maybe Mussolini, because she has the trains. <laughs> Maybe. Got made the trains run on time. I'm going to resist temptation to tell my favorite dumb joke. Okay. Uh, we'll link it in the comments instead. But yeah, there's a lot less of a issue of like it being unclear on whose motives are good or us going, I don't know, the villain's got some points in this. Like, There's no risk of us sympathizing with the villain, which is a problem because then at the end of the series... We're asked to sympathize with the villain. Cora's moment with Kuvira is Kuvira is suddenly scared that there might be consequences for her actions. And he, she goes, oh, well, you know, you're an orphan and that's why you did all these terrible things. Let's hug it out. And then we'll all go back and all stand down and we'll be friends. And it's one of those things that happens a lot in the show of, and we'll come back to this later, of them trying to get an emotional payoff without building up the emotional work. Yeah. Like, I don't have a problem with Korra seeing the humanity in Kuvira and having compassion for her because that's shown that that's kind of a whole part of being the Avatar and, like, being a fully realized Avatar, you're supposed to be able to see the humanity in anybody and in all parts of the world and have compassion for them, even when they are really messed up. I mean, that was the whole thing with like Aang and the Fire Lord and also Aang counseling Katara to not kill the person who killed her mom. It's like you have to find it in yourself to forgive and be compassionate and all of that. And so I, I'm not mad that Korra was there. I just as you say, I don't think it's developed enough to make it feel legitimate. Moments before she was destroying most of a city and killing a family member of one of the main team. Like, it's a very fast turnaround. And you bring yeah. up, like, Aang and the Fire Lord. 
Aaron refuses to kill him, but mm-hmm. does like take away all of his powers, which are a large part of sort of sustaining him, and then locks him in a jail cell. Yeah, but it was more of like, okay, I'm going to remove your ability to impose your will in a negative way on the rest of the world, but he doesn't kill him. There's still his life. There's still a chance for him to redeem himself in some way or become a better person, at least acknowledge the harms that he has caused and maybe regret them. And when you're thinking about a world in which there is reincarnation, I think that's really important because it's you're still giving him that chance to come to terms with what they've done and move forward and be a better person when they're reborn. Right. And I would hope that that is an opportunity afforded to Kuvira, but the level of sympathy we're asked to give her so quickly is still a sticking point. Yeah, and I agree with that 100%. I do think that it happens too quickly and it's not developed enough. Like, there's not enough in the scene to explain that 180, especially when Korra has been previously established as fairly unempathetic. I mean, it's an important part of her growth that she becomes more empathetic to people and becomes more understanding of people who are in a less powerful position than she is. Like, that is her big growth area as an avatar, is checking that arrogance. But she's not really given the time to develop her reaction to Kavira in that moment. It's more like, oh, I've recently been in a rough patch too, and so I can understand that you've also dealt with some interpersonal pain, and and that must be why you decided to literally conquer an entire country with an iron boot. Yep, that's what I do when I'm in a bad (laughs) place, so... And also, like, literally try to kill a collection of people, including my fiancé, who trusts me hours previously. Yep. Ice cold. I mean, actually, I just take naps on the couch when I'm in a bad place, but, you know. Probably much better for everyone else. Eh, a little from column A. Okay. Thus ends our complaining about the storytelling in each season. To be fair, those are us picking out our issues with... Those narratives, there are parts of them that are very well done. Those were just the big sticking points from that seasonal structure. Mm-hmm. And as I say, like their steady move towards more progressive ideals down the line and to that side of things does say to me that there is a conflict within the creation team. So. And or the network's like gauging of public reception and what will fly and being more or less permissive because of that. Yeah. Okay, so, moving on. I think the other big difference is the focus in the storytelling. Avatar Last Airbender is definitely about Team Avatar. Mm -hmm. All of their journeys are important in their own ways. I think Legend of Korra is much more about Korra. We get a couple of episodes where, like, they go off and look at other things, but they're all mostly facilitating Korra's story. Like, there's the first Avatar episodes in Season 2 that are sort of jammed in there forcefully, but they're so they can keep telling Korra's story. Whereas in Avatar, like when you have everyone going off on their little side quests with Zuko, it's because (laughs) we're getting those complete stories. And they're not important to Aang's story, aside from the fact that they're tangentially related. Yeah. Anything you wanted to add to that? I don't think so. I mean, there's much more of a focus on the ensemble for Avatar and they kind of seem to be trying to go in that direction at the beginning of Legend of Korra, but it becomes less and less about the side characters as the narrative moves forward and becomes much more about Korra 
defining herself as the end of the past line of avatars and the beginning of the new line and starting a new cycle and having to really establish a whole lot of new norms and values based on her own conscience rather than having the ability to look back and check in with the spirits of people who have a lot more experience and wisdom than she has. Yeah, I mean, I think it becomes very apparent in season four where her journey is completely separated for the first few episodes at least. Mm-hmm. First half a season or so really, like because she then has her, goes off and does her Luke Skywalk in the swamp with Toph. Everyone else's story ends up being kind of like, well, where is Cora? Yeah. They struggle to just be dealing with their own things. I mean, I guess you have Marco worrying about Wu going to the bathroom, but that's not exactly strong character development. Yeah, there's much less of an emphasis on the other members of Team Avatar or even like sort of the satellite characters to Team Avatar, like their issues. Like there's like a couple episodes here and there, but it's not the consistent through line that it is in Avatar. And I wonder if to some extent that's because they're playing with an older cast Mm -hmm. and it means that relationships are more likely to spring up there. Mm -hmm. With Avatar The Last Airbender, Aang and Katara's relationship is something that grows throughout the whole three seasons to a culmination. Whereas with Korra, relationships are there on the table from the start, which means that because it's stretched over several seasons and people can't be happy, they have to break up. And then there's that sort of wedge within the group that creates a more separate storyline, maybe? I suppose. Like, there's definitely a lot of screen time and episodes that are devoted to the different side characters. I just feel like there's less investigation into, like, who they are and, like, what their particular issues and insecurities are in a similar way to... Avatar. Because there is a lot that you see happen with like Bolin and Mako and, and Asami, particularly like with the whole stuff with Asami's father and that kind of recurs over and like is kind of more developed in a way that's similar to the way that characters' arcs are developed in Avatar, but it just feels like the narrative is more primarily focused on Korra and her journey to kind of establish herself as a new kind of Avatar. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Maybe I overstate it a little bit on how much it's focused on her. It does just feel that way, I think, overall. But I think it makes sense when you look at the overarching goal and end point that Avatar is headed toward, because that is, we need to overcome the Fire Lord. We need to end the war. And that is a group effort that they're all necessary for. Whereas with Korra, there isn't a clearly defined end point. What ends up being the end point is a point at which Korra feels like she has kind of shepherded the world through changes to a point where it can stand on its own and she can move on and it can be okay without her and she can leave and the world doesn't need an avatar anymore enough that she can just go off into the spirit world for however long she wants and not be the person everyone's looking to to save the day when things get bad. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. Like Avatar's overall message seems to be I can't do this by myself. We have to all do it together. Like, Aang wants to go and do things by himself. And everyone's like, no, like, you need a team around you. And with Korra, it's much more of a, who am I? How am I going to do this? I have to face this alone. This is my burden to bear. Right. And she's having to get to a point where she can not have to bear that burden anymore. And society can stand by itself and people can make their own decisions because 
they've broken away from these very rigid institutional hierarchies that characterized the environments in the first season. Yeah. And because you shouldn't have too much power in one person, just like Zahir said in season three. Yeah. Uh. I mean, he did say the world doesn't need an avatar. <laughs> and then, as you say, she's gone for three years and it's fine. <laughs> and then she fucks off for presumably forever. And the show seems to be saying that that's okay. And it something is. that she deserves to be able to do. Yeah. As long as you have airbenders to step in as like international vigilante justice you'll be fine right but i think it also helps that the airbenders are largely pacifist like they're not interested in being an aggressive force so much as a assisting force except for milo except for milo who's just the worst character ever if someone can do me a favor i'm pretty sure you could go through legend of Korra and create a cut that doesn't contain milo and i think it would be an objectively better show yeah. So if someone can do that, drop me a link. I'd really appreciate it. I really think that character was only included to like appease 10-year-old boys watching the show. Yeah, you're probably right. Because it's... otherwise it might be a girl show. Yeah. And it can't be a girl's show because there's farting. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah. He just manages to like, whatever else is going on on screen, I'm just like, <sighs> and just zone out for a moment. like. Yeah. Anyway. I remember being in a writing seminar several years ago with an author who was talking about the issues that he had because people kept coming to him and saying, hey, when are you going to write the third book in this series? And the problem he'd had come across was that he'd written a book with this character. And in the second book, he goes and finds this tribe of people who think he's a god and are like, ah, yes, you are clearly our god who will have all of these powers. And while writing it, thought a fun twist would be, what if he was the god and gives him all of these powers? And at the end of book two, he found he couldn't write book three because he'd created a god as his protagonist. And it's very hard to give those people challenges because they're gods. I bring this up because it's the problem that Korra gives themselves. Yeah, I think this has come up in like everything that I've ever read about writing. That, you know, you can't have an overpowered main character or just boring. And then your whole story has to be about pulling them down. And that is exactly what Korra does. They pull her down in various ways. And that rings in a kind of upsetting way because it is a female character. And we get so few of those in this kind of landscape that it then just kind of feels like she's a punching bag for the narrative. And it's not cool. And it's very easy to see how it happened. It's the... Well, we've already done an avatar getting all of their powers. So what if this one already had most of their powers at the start? That would be exciting. And we could explore other things. And then end of season one, she gets the ability to do airbending and loses the other ones. And for a moment, it looks as though we're going to sort of fall into this. Oh, so now the other three seasons will be her going and having to relearn the other ones as a response to this trauma and... It will be a little bit repetitive, but it could be interesting. And then last four minutes of season one are, oh, she's lost them. Oh, now she's got them back. Yeah. It feels like a very odd turnaround. I think they do fix it in an interesting way by bringing in the spirit world more. It's a little bit strange that we don't really hear much about spirit bending in Avatar Last Airbender or season one. And then it's brought up as this big major thing from the Northern Water Tribe in season two. But bringing that in as a thing for her to learn and a effectively a driving force for a lot of the rest of the big changes that happen in the series, I think was a good fix for that. 
It seems to be an important part of them bringing the Avatar cycle full circle because it starts with an integrated mundane and spirit world and that interaction between humans and spirits. And that has become less and less of a thing. And so this point at which the Avatar already starts with almost all of the like physical-oriented powers, their main challenge is developing those spiritual ones and reintegrating the world in that way, which I like. I think that works very well as a depiction of that cycle. Yeah, and when we hit the end of season two and she's mastered spirit stuff, Spirit stuff is the technical term from the show. If you've not seen it, just trust me. And you have reintegrated and she has lost that connection to the last avatars and she's starting a new cycle of her own. That is very neat. And I like it. They have at this point set themselves up in a position where someone can be a giant blue spirit thing and now they're a god again. (laughs) Yeah, which is again why then season three has to conclude with her being tortured and stripped of her strength because she's been poisoned and traumatized. Yeah. It's a little bit strange in the show, the result of this being half the time she's being pulled back by a limitation on her powers that's been imposed by the narrative. And the other half the time it's by people's assumptions. Mm -hmm. But the first season, it's like the governing council who don't really respect her and don't really want her messing around with what they're doing. And she's not ready yet. Yeah, and they they think she needs to do something, you know, I guess master airbending or something, but they don't think she's capable of taking a leadership position. And then the second season, she's being manipulated by a corrupt official who's also a relative, and in the third one, she is legitimately poisoned and tortured, so... Well, it's it's at the end of season two, she's garnered all this respect. Mm -hmm. Everyone's like, ah, you've become the greatest avatar. You're so young, but you've already made such a change and you've reunited the spirit world. We have so much respect for you. Start of season three. Oh, no, these people you can't fight. We'll have to do this for you because they're very dangerous. Yeah. (laughs) You just saw her like as a huge giant in the Bay of Republic City like two weeks ago. Yeah. Give her a little bit of credit now. Yeah, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But yeah, like once she has gotten the institutional barriers down, then she has mental barriers instead. Mental and physical barriers instead. I want to talk about that more. I do want to note that one of the problems that I do have with the... You have this female character who's very powerful and then they have to hamstring her to be able to make a good narrative around her is that at the same time... I think, and please correct me if I'm wrong, all of the leaders, at least all of the effective leaders who aren't just massively villainous, are men. No, there's like Su Yin and Lin and... Well, Lin's the chief of police. She's not yeah, like a but she head is, of Yeah, but she body. is a leader and Su Yin is the leader of, the, of Zhao Fu and she's in charge there. The queen, there was a queen of the Earth Kingdom. Who's shown to be a terrible leader and is murdered. She was was terrible. And there's a queen in in the Fire Nation, but we don't really see her. Is there? Yeah. It's Zuko's daughter, who's the queen of the Fire Nation. We don't see her. She's not really relevant to the plot, except that Zuko has to leave to protect her when the Red Lotus is trying to kill all the monarchs. Why is she a queen and not a Fire Lord? Azula was going to be Fire Lord Azula. I don't know if he calls her a queen, but like functionally, like... If that's what you mean, okay, yeah. They have a female leader in the Fire Nation. Okay. She's the Fire Lord. But we don't see her. We don't see her. 
We do see that the representative of the Fire Nation is a woman, though, in the first season, the one on the council. There are other female leaders who are not terrible people, like the Queen of Bossing Say. Okay, fair enough. Anyway, so, season three, they're torturing Poison Cora. Yeah. And while I do have similar issues to the ones you've raised with the fact that, you know, they've developed a strong female character and then they have to kind of punch her down throughout the narrative, I do appreciate the way that that story arc and consequences of that situation are handled because I think it is, it's nice to see a main character who's experienced a horrible trauma then not have that horrible trauma like disappear with very little to address it because I think that minimizes the work that goes into legitimately recovering from something like that. So you see that there there are physical consequences of like her body being poisoned by the metal and she's physically weakened and incapacitated by that. But then there's also the mental anguish and things that are going on that make it difficult for her to move forward from that experience. I appreciate that they show how that can be sort of a interactive process between the body and the mind in that Su Yin and Lin try to take the mercury or whatever it is out of Korra's body, but there's trace amounts still there. And when Toph tries to get it out, she recognizes that Korra is partly hanging on to that. Like Korra is part of the reason that not all of that is gone. And it's because there's a part of her that is worried about failing. There's a part of her that's worried about trying to move on and not being able to do it, not being able to regain her former glory and abilities and and strength. And if you don't fully try, you can't fully fail. Because then if you fail, you can always tell yourself, well, I didn't really put my all into that. I didn't didn't give it my all and still fail. That would be even worse of a blow to your self-image. And so there's a part of her that's protecting herself by weakening herself in a way that's very human and something that people do, in fact, do all the time. And then once she is able to acknowledge that she is in some ways holding herself back, she and herself is afraid to fully move forward and kind of try and move on from that situation, that is only one step. She's able to get the metal out. Now there's no physical barrier, but there's still a lot of mental ones. She still has very classic signs of post-traumatic stress disorder, like flashbacks and nightmares and things that come up in particular circumstances, like when she's trying to use particular abilities or in particular situations where she freezes up or in other ways is inhibited by physical reactions that are triggered by those thoughts. And I appreciate that it's not just something that goes away. It's something that continues to be a problem for her that she continues to work on and has to realize is going to be a process. Yes. (laughs) I'll like talk about stuff like this and then like all you'll do is go, yes. You're the authority on this on the podcast. That doesn't mean you don't have thoughts and opinions with the way that it's done or even with the ideas themselves. You don't have to be an expert or, you know, a student of these processes to have an opinion on them. No, I mean, I'm obviously being glib. It introduces this strange horror component that does get a little bit forgotten. It's sort of set up as a physical figure in the first episode or two, where she's in the fighting ring and then in the streets afterwards. And there's an implication that the there's a dog that can see her post-traumatic stress 
vision thing that suggests that the avatar state element is sort of embodying it in the real world and it's not fully mental. Mm. Yeah, it's there's sort of an implication that she's rejecting the avatar state and she's rejecting it because the period that she was tortured was to force her to take the avatar state so she could be killed while in it and end the avatar line forever. But so she now has internalized this rejection of it and of it being painful, of the avatar experience being a deeply painful and traumatic thing. Those have become linked in her mind. And so it's like she's pushing it outside of herself and it seems to be manifesting in a kind of similar like physical way where she's seeing the spirit of her avatar state in that tortured moment outside of her body haunting her. And maybe that dog does see that because maybe it is like seeing other spirits. There's some ambiguity there as far as how that would work with the rules of the universe. Yeah, I mean, other than that, overall, like, I do just really appreciate that it is not something that there's ever a moment when she's like, oh, good, I'm over that PTSD now. It is, as you say, a journey that she continues to struggle with and that she does seek different avenues to try and work around. How do you see her going to see Zaheer as part of that? Because it sort of seems to send a message that you need to confront the trauma source and I don't know how that works with real PTSD I would have thought that would just be more likely to cause a relapse I'm not sure either I think that there are conflicting views on that but I know that for some people it can be helpful to have closure on certain things or to recenter I guess like the reality of what something was but I don't really feel particularly qualified to speak to that like I think that they do establish it very well within the narrative that that's something that she has to do Because a big part of what is terrorizing her is that she can't quite accept that he's no longer a threat and that she's no longer in danger of having that experience happen to her and being brought down in that way again. And so seeing that he is incarcerated and is not in a position to harm her anymore, I could see being reassuring in that process of trying to move on and recreate the world in her mind as a place where that's not lurking yeah and i do appreciate that there are times when she is like i'm pretty sure i'm over this thing now it's it shouldn't be an issue anymore and then finds out that she's wrong Mm -hmm. like it's that it drives home that like this isn't something with a magic bullet cure yeah to go back to the thing with zaheer i think it probably has helped that like i think the idea of going to see him might be problematic but because it's not like she goes and sees him in chains and is like oh okay that's fine then Mm -hmm. But he works through things with her in an interesting way to rehabilitate a villain where he does work with her and they go to the spirit world. Yeah. Zaheer has a very interesting arc because unlike Kuvira, I think they do the work to kind of establish that he did have the best interests of the people at heart and he was going about it the wrong way and eventually is at a point where he can kind of at least acknowledge some part of that and acknowledge the harm that he did to Korra. And it it was very clear from the beginning that the harm he was doing to Korra wasn't personal, but that doesn't make it okay. But that does sort of bring us into the spirit world as a way that that's used for storytelling in this series. The spirit world's obviously present in the first series, but it's much more a thing that is also there than the major plot element that it is for Korra. Yeah. It has a much more central role in the overarching narrative. 
But yeah. it's also shown as a more complete place. It's it's used to be scary in Avatar because it's where the face stealer is. Mm-hmm. Other than that, like we get some spirits in that early village and when they go to the library. Yeah, I mean, in Avatar, it's more there are spirits and they are sort of Lorax's for the environment and like the treatment of the environment and the natural world by humans. They're not super developed. In Korra, that is still true. Like I do see the spirit world in a lot of ways as sort of a proxy for the environment and the natural world and this conflict that humans have where we need to coexist with the environment and we need to accept that we ourselves are a part of the environment but try really hard to think of ourselves as separate and dominating it and wanting to constantly control the environment rather than viewing ourselves as part of a ecosystem. Yeah, I think that it is interesting because it works for the climate analogy and working with the ecosystem. But I think that there's some greater issues of unity there. In the first Avatar story, we see the way that people are hunting the spirits. And I think that's very clear as like the war on the environment and sort of notions of climate change type things and the damage that you do to the environment. With season three, where things have been rejoined and the spirits have come back, I think there's an argument to say that they become kind of an analogy for immigrants or refugees Mm. within Republic City. And this might be a bit of a stretch. I don't know. But a lot of the language that you see the President of the Republic use about them and like demanding that Korra get them out of the city mm-hmm. rings to me much more of like xenophobic ideas than anything else. It's certainly a pushback against the change in the status quo. Mm. And in that regard, I can definitely see your point. It didn't strike me in that particular way, but I can see it. That's an interesting notion, like the idea that that's a pushback on the status quo, because I think season three is also when Korra is, as a narrative, is more willing to be pushing on the status quo. We talked about how the first season is sort of like a return to the way things were Mm -hmm. and a return to the status quo. Whereas in season three, when the president is complaining about this, she has kind of an element of like, I'll see what I can do, but I mean... This is the way things are now. You wanted an avatar that did things. (laughs) I changed stuff. Yeah. And it's interesting how the different receptions are to those changes because it's opening this other spirit portal has brought the world's kind of overlapping again. And it's brought airbending back into the world, which Tenzin is amazed and so happy about. It takes a huge weight off of his shoulders in terms of trying to repopulate all of the airbenders through his one family he doesn't need to have a fifth kid yeah and you know it's something that where he's able to sort of preserve his heritage and like the people he came from and fulfill the legacy of his father but other people even other people who like get airbending a lot of them are scared about it and they don't want it or they they don't know what to do and they certainly are not necessarily inclined to completely abandon their cultural traditions and way of life to absorb that of another community that happened to have that ability and so there's some conflict even with just that one change and then you have the spirit vines all over the place which is an institutional hazard it's a structural hazard to people who are used to the way that things were and like the built environment 
that they had grown used to. And interestingly enough, that's exactly what's happening with climate change. Like it's a threat to the way we've been constructing our environment and the way that we've been thinking about infrastructure. Again, something that comes up a lot with the research projects that I'm involved with for my work, but you know, it came up in The Last of Us as well. In a period of great uncertainty, it becomes very complicated to anticipate and design what you need to cope with unknown challenge, particularly interrelated unknown challenges. And that's kind of what you're seeing in Cora in that situation, because you have this influx of new residents with different needs, the spirits themselves and the spirit vines, which are apparently invasive and immobile and also sentient, like they fight back and you have to kind of figure out how to reorganize and rethink what you're doing with like, what does a city look like that is occupied with these new forms of life? Just wondering if I can put together a playlist of our podcasts that end up talking about architecture and climate change. <laughs> it's it's an odd through line. Well, we you know when you have a hammer, you see a lot more nails, I guess. And there's the uh, larger threat to the infrastructure of giant robots with spirit cannons. Yeah. <laughs> also very bad for uh, trying to anticipate the future needs. Which if you want a nice sign of, or a nice analogy for damaging the climate being bad for everyone a, a giant spirit vine powered robot that levels half a city might be it yeah like harnessing the power of nature in a way it wasn't intended to is is bad for people mm -hmm. like if you don't really keep that in check like yeah well they end up with a third spirit portal in the middle of the city at the end of that season at the end of season four because of the misuse of spirit energy by that robot they end up tearing open a new spirit portal in the middle of Republic City. Which I think ends up being a good thing, but it's also a point of, like, the two things coming together. Yeah. But I think the other big thing that you get with the spirit world, like, I mean, obviously, sort of as a character, the spirits in the spirit world are important to Korra, but there's also just an element to which they use it as a tool for the storytelling of certain narratives. Cora's journey into there where she comes across Iroh, which I mean, okay, so mostly that's a tool for fan service. Um, <laughs> um, I was very surprised that they brought back Iroh considering they had to use a different voice actor. But mm -hmm. I think he did a good job though. He did. I just very much, like, I see how that pays homage, but I also could have seen the decision to let the character be to some extent. I don't know. I'm not mad about it. I just think it's an interesting choice. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of space there for, I mean, also with Zaheer's journey with her in the spirit world and their meetings there and also a lot of the complexity that comes up in season three with Janora and co with like their bodies being in the real world and the spirit part being in the spirit world. It opens up a lot of interesting avenues there that allow for some sort of fairly straight growth stories, which mm -hmm. I think you see most clearly and I sort of want to talk about these characters anyway of... Um, how they use that to explore the relationship between Tenzin and his siblings. Yeah. Kaya and Bumi. Yeah, and Tenzin's an interesting character because he's the youngest of Aang and Katara's three kids, and he's the only one who's an airbender. And so he has this idea of his father that's very different than that that his siblings have, where they went on lots of journeys and he taught Tenzin lots of stuff, and like they spent like a lot of quality time together. And 
And I appreciate the unpacking of like the resentments and the interfamilial conflicts that sort of arise when you have that kind of situation. Yeah, I also really appreciate how it shows a reasonable development of Aang into a flawed character. Mm -hmm. Because throughout the first three seasons, he's an immature character. Like, he is a young character who has had the weight of the world thrust on his shoulders. Mm -hmm. And, like, he enjoys playing games and getting attention from people. And, I mean, he's the Avatar. He defeated the Fire Lord. You could see how there might not be that much to keep him in check as time went on. And you do definitely see a more serious side of him in some of the flashbacks in the first season. But you also see, like, the picture of him that someone has a collector's item where he's playing with the little marble things and has a big stupid grin on his face. I think it's very believable that Aang grows up to someone who finally has a child who is an airbender and kind of forgets the rest of his kids in his excitement. I don't know that it's believable that Katara doesn't take him aside and say, what the fuck, Aang? (laughs) Yeah. But... (laughs) Yeah, and that... does kind of bother me and like I can kind of see where you'd get some of that even though I'm I would imagine Katara would try to kind of put that in check to a certain extent but there's also the extent to which Aang would have so much he would have to teach Tenzin and so much of cultural significance to try and impart to him to try and like make sure that everything Aang could take from that entire culture was passed on to Tenzin that I could see how it would be really hard to have that not end up being in a position where even if Tenzin wasn't his out-and-out favorite, it would really look that way and feel that way to Tenzin's siblings. You know, like at a point where it's like, okay, I need to teach you all of these techniques. I also need to teach you all of this history and all of this philosophy and all of these stories of all of the airbenders that came before and this entire community so that one day when you have kids, you can pass that on and eventually we'll have our people back. And if that's not going to be of any interest to Kaya or Bumi, then of course they would feel left out. Now, what bothers me is that Aang didn't include Kaya and Bumi. It's their heritage too. They yeah. come from the airbending nation as well. They are from that line too. Those are their stories as well. And and that's something that I think you can definitely blame Aang for, for not going to the effort to really include his older kids in that and make sure that he did pass those traditions on to the whole family. Yeah, it raises an interesting question about the Air Nation Society or the Air Nomad Society because it does appear in the original series that all of the Air Nomads are airbenders, Mm -hmm. which begs the question whether their tradition is if you have a kid who isn't an airbender, you tell them to piss off. (laughs) (laughs) Because the thing is like, Kaya is a waterbender and Mm -hmm. is portrayed as sort of following all of those waterbender traditions. Mm -hmm. Bumi joined the military. He maybe has some traits of an earthbender to him in how he's portrayed, but he doesn't have any waterbending culture to him and he doesn't have any air nation culture to him. It seems as if it was almost given up on. Yeah, and I I do think they do a lot to make you feel that for him, feel sorry for him, because it very much is implied that they had him first and he wasn't a bender. And I would think maybe he would have been close to Sokka and Sokka is dead. Mm. But he's followed pretty closely by Kaya, who is very clearly fully embraced by the water tribe and 
then must be learning all of the waterbending techniques from Katara, who's a noted waterbender. And so, like, I guess at the point that they had a bending child, they sort of let Boomy kind of do whatever. But you would think that he would have some sort of cultural connection to his mother's people, his father's traditions, but he doesn't seem to. He seems to have decided or gotten the message that he's not necessarily wanted or included as part of those groups. And so he decided to forge his own identity in a group he chose, which is the military. Yeah, it's the joining the military to find your own family story. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, makes things even more complicated when he becomes an airbender later on when that's released into the world again, because now suddenly he is expected to carry on those traditions that he resented not being included in. And given the implication that bending ability is hereditary and not necessarily always like it does seem like it might show up sometimes you know like it's not necessarily going to be every generation like wouldn't ang want to teach kaya and boomy all of that stuff in i mean what if they had an airbending child you know like then they'd have their uncle tenzin to maybe teach them the techniques but then the culture and the perspectives and the philosophies like would be valuable to have in your parents when you're growing up so like it just seems very short-sighted to have not included them it is very interesting that kaya and boomy seem to have no other connections like boomy has the military but drops out when the story gets going so that he can be around and kaya like shows up but neither of them have partners or kids or anything they just don't know if that's lazy writing or a deep commentary on something or yeah i don't know it's not terribly clear i mean i can see how boomy might not have formed other connections if he was always on the move in the military and yeah very he seems to have led a fairly rootless existence by choice so that doesn't surprise me so much but kaya maybe if she's got more roots in the community but i don't know you know people do their own thing kaya does give the vibe of like someone who lives in the hut on the outskirts of town and the kids in the town tell weird stories about her <laughs> maybe. Um, she definitely has like cool aunt vibes sure anyway Spirit world with relation to this, which is where we started some time ago, is right. um, you see there's the pit of despair. I don't know what it's called. I've forgotten. The weird fog, fog of fear. Yeah. The fog that basically makes you relive all of your worst experiences. Because that's a place that needed to exist. Apparently. Um, and it was also a chance for them to bring back uh, Admiral Khan. Yeah. Which does clarify that he did die in that fight and someone does die in Avatar Last <laughs> Ender. Uh, people die aplenty in Korra. That is one thing that has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, not graphically, but like there's definitely like moments where they could put the subtitles in and then they died. Like the giant robot at the end destroys like an entire watch outpost before they can report and... Yeah, and Unalak and uh, his brother, who is on the council, definitely blow themselves up in the water at the end of that season. Um, Iman, not Unalak. Oh, sorry, yeah. But Boomy in the fog. This is something you want to talk about. Yeah, in the fog, he relives horrible like war memories, horrible experiences that he had as a person in the military, which makes a lot of sense. Like That's probably what would happen if you were a career military person who had served in several different um what's the word i'm looking for anyway but yeah it makes a lot of sense that boomy who is a career military person would have 
memories of horrible experiences that happened on his various tours of duty. He would have been around when people died. He tells a lot of really crazy stories that Tenzin thinks is made up, but really probably aren't, of him having to be really creative in a really shitty situation. And then, like, that's very much shown to be a thing that he has some some scars from, you know? He's carrying some baggage about all of that, and he uses humor and being silly to, it seems, kind of deflect one ease around other people, very much like that comedian who's depressed type of a situation. Like, he's got a lot of pain there, not just from his family environment, but also from his military experience. And that's something that you don't really see Tenzin or Kaya appreciate until that point, until they see him actually having to confront those memories without being able to get away from them. Yeah, I think that it's a really good scene for both the audience and Tenzin to see the depth that he has as a character, because up to that point, he has been shown as kind of a clown. Yeah, he's very much a comic relief type person who's there to really poke fun at Tenzin, who's such a stick in the mud. Yeah, and then just showing why he's like that, and that that is a defense mechanism. And then in later seasons, showing how effective he can be in a fight. Yeah, and showing that that experience has been valuable and is really useful when you are trying to, say, whip into shape a whole bunch of brand new airbenders who have no concept of discipline. Yeah. You know, he's goofy, but he's goofy on his off time when he is not in a position where a bunch of people are relying on him. Like, Tenzin's perception of his brother and Kai's perception of Bumi seems to be a little more realistic, but Tenzin's in particular seems to be entirely based on, like, Boomy on shore leave. And that's a very different person. Yeah. And, I mean, it's one of Tenzin's many flaws as a character. Yes. I find him oddly endearing as Boomy or a... Tenzin? Huh? Boomy or Tenzin? Tenzin. As a character who is struggling to do well. Like, I think he could have been written as a very serious mentor that, like, was, you know, a master in his trade and... Uh, above question, but he's someone who is expected to be that Mm -hmm. and who is dealing with the weight of those expectations and the fact that it's not that simple. Yeah. I think he's a well-portrayed character for that. Yeah, I Um, agree. And I think it is interesting the way that the different characters from Avatar The Last Airbender have a presence in Korra. Mm -hmm. Um, They clearly take some liberties with how long people live. (laughs) Although I suppose 80 years and they were all in their 10 to 14 age range to begin with. So they'd only be mid-90s. Yeah. It's not like, uh, I'm sure there's someone we worked out would have been over 100. Boomy. Hmm? Boomy. Oh. In Avatar The Last Airbender. Yes. Boomy would have been well into his hundreds because he would have been like eight or whatever when Aang went into the ice. Eight or 10, something like that. And that was 80 years so he would have... No, it was 100 years. Oh, it was 100 years. So then he would have been like 110 at yeah. the events of Avatar The Last Airbender. But people do live to be 110. They do. I mean, obviously Iroh, they bring him from the spirit world. Mm-hmm. And Aang has a presence in flashbacks and through recollections of people. Mm-hmm. Katara's presence is like very casual. Mm-hmm. She's kind of around. And they have to put a line in one of the later seasons to explain why she didn't help out more in season two. Yeah. <laughs> and it's essentially, because she's 90, let the woman be retired. God damn. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, pretty much what Toph says. And pretty much in those words, because it's Toph. 
Toph has an interesting appearance because for a long time before we see her, we see her through Lynn and Sue's relationship with her mm-hmm. and how that wasn't great. In a way that's not surprising. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing as with Aang. Like, these are people who did great things for the world when they were 12. And they had a lot going on after that. Yeah, like, Toph invented metal bending. Like, she's literally a legend. So who, again, who is going to go, are you being the best parent you could be? Have you thought maybe you should settle down a bit and like really care about them a bit more? No, okay, you want to keep doing what you're doing? You keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, especially as they don't have another parent around to maybe call her on any of that or support her in any of that. Like she was a single working parent who was also legendary with the eyes of everyone on her all the time. And like soccer is a great organizer. The Mm -hmm. fact that that character without much persuasion could grow up and be part of the city council, yeah, I believe that. He probably still played pranks on people and was kind of a pain in the ass, but he was probably a decent leader as well. Again, like, Katara is fairly level-headed in the original series. She grows up and doesn't call Aang out on his shitty parenting, but whatever. But Toph has a lot of personality issues that you need to grow out of eventually. Mm -hmm. Ideally, maybe. And if she's not challenged, I can see how the personality that we see of her in Avatar continues Mm -hmm. to that point. I think it's rationally reasonable. But then having Toph and uh, Zuko appear, but to offer advice and to help out a little bit. And then I think the message is very important of we fought our battles. You need to deal with this now. This is your fight. Also, my back hurts. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, at some point, is what Toph says, you have to let the next generation take over. And I think that's true, because there's no way anyone learns to deal with challenges until they actually do it. Like, you can watch other people and you can learn about what they did all you want, but that's very different from actually doing it. And if you never do it, you can't advise the next generation of people who are going to have to do it after you're gone. So in that way, like, it makes sense. They're there to advise. They're there to offer perspective based on the things that they've experienced and to previously arm you with the knowledge and experience that you need to meet a challenge. But they won't be around forever. And in order for you to be able to do stuff when they're not, you sometimes have to start while they're there. Yeah. And, like, I think that I'm not going to say that those appearances aren't fan servicey. Maybe a little bit, but I don't think they are bad. They they are well justified, I think. Yeah, I think they work well in the narrative. I think that they fit properly. The line about why Katara isn't helping, like that was very clearly like, people have been writing and complaining about this, and so I'm going to tell them why we didn't have Katara solve the problems. And so, you know, that does feel a little out of place. I get why it's there. But the other main part of it is something I think that does make sense. It's like you can't always expect everyone who fixed the problem before to always fix the problem. At some point you have to do it. Yeah. I appreciate that they didn't try and like recreate Team Avatar from Last Airbender with Korra. Like the characters don't map directly. Yeah. Um, I think the closest thing that you get is potentially with Sokka and Asami being the non-benders. Mm-hmm. But I think there's still a decent amount of difference there. They're both people who their power is that they're very smart in some way. Yeah. But I think the thing that I, I value most as a difference there is that they make Asami 
a unique character who has a has particular abilities and strong combat skills from the off. Yeah. She's a genius. She's a mechanical genius and she is a good hand in a fight at the beginning, but she's never like the tactical leader that Sokka becomes. Right. But it did feel like I know that they do a lot of like Sokka is the scheduler and understands mm-hmm. how time works and things, but there's that very forced episode in <laughs> season three of Avatar where they're like, oh yeah, Sokka should have something that makes him really special. Everyone else is getting uh, maybe a sword? Is yeah. a sword a thing? He can be a sword person. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really think that episode is about him learning how to use the sword at all. I think it's about you know, showing the value of his creative thinking and problem-solving skills. But that's the sort of skill set that isn't as flashy, and so I can understand why they kind of felt the need to highlight it. Yeah. It is very easy to sort of brush him aside for the first couple of seasons. But now we're just talking about Avatar. Hmm? But now we're just talking about Avatar. I was about to relate it to Korra until you cut me off. I'm sorry. But I don't think that's the case with Asami. Okay. She does get a little bit relegated to love interest for a little bit. A little while at the beginning, yeah. And like there's a point where it looks like she might get twisted into a villain because of rejection or something, but that doesn't happen. And instead we get wonderful scenes of Mako being awkward around his two exes who are now friends. And I'm here for it. Those are pretty great. (laughs) And they're both just like, wow, he's a doof. Yep. I appreciate that he's later able to recognize that he was completely crazy around them for a while and like hilariously so. In the clip show episode? In the clip show episode, yeah. But any Avatar Universe series must have towards the end is the episode, in case you just started watching the show, here's what's happened so far. Yeah. I did appreciate Mako's narration more than the weird play, I think. Yeah, yeah. The play fell out of some things, but we talked about that in our Mm -hmm. other episode, so go listen to that. Uh, Well, don't. Finish this one first and then go and listen to that. Okay, so I think we've got a couple of last things to talk about. Uh, One is I just want to sort of have a moment with the character of Varric. Mm -hmm. Varric is very much the, like, Barney Stinson character of Legend of Korra. He is to begin with. Yeah, that's how they started with that guy, and he's terrible at the beginning and just kind of the worst. I think he was written to be a terrible person for season two. Yeah. And then... Because they Barney Stinson him and have him be like a lovable, terrible person, like he's fun and exciting. And sure, he holds these terrible views about women, but he's fun and exciting. And I think the fun, exciting things that this is purely speculation meant that he became a weird fan favorite or possibly a writer favorite because writing a kind of character can be kind of interesting. And they were like, yeah, we want to keep him around. Let's break him out of jail and keep him in this thing but then set themselves this challenge of having to make him less of an asshole yeah and i i think that they're successful yeah i think that they are and i think a big part of that is the julie character as well and also the fact that he gets an opportunity to discover his conscience which was a big like the big problem he had before was that he was capitalist through and through any way I can make a buck and exploit other people to do that totally down until it's super weapon time and he's like okay actually didn't know I had one but there it is the conscience yeah now that's what y'all have been talking right yes okay I get it now (laughs) and like a literal scene where he actually is like why do I feel bad Yeah. That would be conscience. Yeah, I think that that is the turning point for me was the moment when he 
is like, oh no, we're, we're going to blow up. I've rigged this to blow up. It needs to go away and we're stuck here. Uh, and it's Bolin who's like, no, let's let's live. Yeah. Well, but Varric he, is willing to self-sacrifice for it. Yeah, he's willing to self-sacrifice for it. He kind of hopes it won't come to that. He hopes that they'll figure something out in the limited span of time, but he's fully aware that they might not. And yeah. he's decided that that is a risk he's willing to take because he is not going to willingly unleash a super weapon on the world. And it's a kind of a low bar. <laughs> you know, you got to start somewhere. But it, I think, does introduce him to the novel feeling of having empathy for other people and concern for lives that aren't his own. Yeah, it certainly opens the door for the Julie relationship. Yeah. I do want to say I think that that is one of the moments where they want emotional payoff but don't do quite enough work for it. 100%. I can see how they're working towards it. And, like, if they'd had three more episodes between, like, the conversation on the radio tower and the proposal, mm -hmm. I'd buy it. Sure. But it's not quite enough time and work put in there of actual emotions between the two, or, like, at least from Varric. Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of nodded at, and then they propose. Yeah. Like, at the point that the proposal happens, I'd be more willing to expect Julie to say yes to, do you know, like, maybe grab a cup of coffee later? Like, mm -hmm. that sort of commitment. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to say about Varric? No, not really. One uh, interesting storytelling part of this that is fascinating for how it tells you the story and provides some comedy relief is the announcer. Yeah, the announcer who also sort of breaks the fourth wall a little bit or like leans against the fourth wall in a large way is uh, self-referential, like in terms of like acknowledging that he is a real person reporting on this stuff. It's it's pretty great. Yeah, and I can see how it came about with the first season with the, I've forgotten the name of the sport they play. Pro bending. Pro bending, yes. It's a very inventive name, I know. Hard to remember. For some reason, I was stuck on Blitzball, which is a thing from Final Fantasy and not this. But I can see how that came about with having him doing that announcing and also doing the previously on stuff and just sort of going from there. Yeah. They let themselves get very silly with it when, like, someone points a gun at him and he's reporting on the fact that someone's pointing a gun on him. Mm. Uh. Yeah, I believe he reports on the fact that he's, like, wet his pants or something. Yep. Yeah, uh, it becomes not just a commentator on the story, but a part of the story. But it means that the recaps that they provide are a little bit more interesting because it's not Katara giving some like recount of what's been going on. It's this character who is a character in the show, but very much a side character. And by season four, we haven't seen him for a season and a half, two seasons. But he is able to provide outside commentary on the story. Yeah. And there are times where, and whether this is good storytelling or not, we could debate, but you learn things from the previously on. I saw a thing earlier today. It was like, what shows do you not skip the intro on? Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the few where we don't skip the intro because sometimes it contains extra story. Yeah. And it also ends up being like a part of the world building. It's like the news, you know? And, yeah. it, and all previously on type of things do sort of prime you to expect what's going to come up in the next season that, or in the next episode. They're a little spoilery in that way. But in this one, I think the announcer also asks questions to the audience sometimes of like, will they be able to do this thing, you know, in a way that is sort of setting you up to have some anticipation for what's going to happen rather than just 
kind of telling you what the topic's going to be. Which I think is interesting because I think it dates back to like sort of old radio dramas. Right. And I think that's what they're referencing because the time period in terms of the technology is sort of of that time, like a 20s, 30s-ish period. And so I I appreciate that tie-in on style. So I think the last thing that we want to talk about was Cora's relationships, which I mean, really, she only has a couple. The first season is extremely cringy for the whole love triangle situation. Yeah. Um, And I don't necessarily appreciate how she handles relationships throughout with like Mako and things, but I'll give it a pass on she's a teenager with a lot of power and it's weird and therefore sometimes breaking a desk is just what happens. Yeah. She also seems to have been pretty sheltered given that they were trying to hide her from the Red Lotus. Yeah. Really, really what we want to talk about here is we went into this with some expectations because we were told Cora is great because there's LGBT representation. She's bi. So we're excited about this because LGBT representation. And we get to season four and they seem to start hinting at a relationship between Asami and Cora. Okay, that's cool. And there's sort of some you know, a little bit more than friendship type conversations going on maybe. And then at the end we get to the finale and like they're sitting and there's a wedding going on and you're, you're getting ready for like the kiss or something. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing happens. They are very good friends and there is a subtext that there might be a relationship and then they go off to travel the spirit world together. The level of plausible deniability in this mm-hmm. to champion this as representation Headcanon and fandom are doing a lot of work there. Like, it's clearly, there's clearly an intention in that direction. If if there was a kiss at the end, it would have been very well set up, better than the Varric and Julie relationship. Yeah, it would have been. But the problem is that it remains subtext all the way through the end. It never becomes overtly acknowledged or stated or owned. They kind of bend over backwards to not own it. And that is cowardly and shitty and it's disappointing right and like there are so many opportunities at the end when it would have been so natural and it would have been the best relationship drawn in the piece and i am mostly mad about it because people make such a big deal out of it Mm -hmm. when i don't see it being there i do recognize that it's very clearly the intention of the writers to move in that direction And it's presumably a sign of the times it was made that there's not anything concrete there. Yeah, but it's still very frustrating when it is, as you say, held up as this example of progress and representation and then to have it be so weak. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit depressing that I'm saying the sign of the times when this was released in 2014. It was only six years ago, Mm -hmm. Um, which maybe talks about how far we've come in that time. Yeah. I mean, we're still in a position where... You know, Disney and Pixar are making a big deal about the fact that they've got a LGBT character in the background of one of their scenes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and we had Steven Universe and we know that the team behind that had to fight, Rebecca Sugar in particular, had to really fight to have the lesbian wedding in that. And yeah. that was like a whole thing. And there was a lot of effort to ensure some plausible deniability for international markets in particular in the production of that. And that was a little bit later than this. So like, I know it is the landscape, but it's still, I think it's really just the fact that it is so held up in the fandom that way that it makes it kind of sad because like, well, if this is supposed to be one of the best offerings, then that's just disappointing and just shows how far we haven't come or at least hadn't at that point in time. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't blame the fandom for it as such because I imagine this is people who watched it when it aired Mm -hmm. and it was the closest thing they'd seen at the time. Yeah. Which is, as you say, it's sad. On the other hand, I know that like Cartoon Network put out a Pride thing this year. Yeah. And they championed like three characters as their LGBT people and Korra was one of them. Mm -hmm. And I don't know enough about the other two characters to comment, but... I can't remember who the other two... One was Spongebob. I don't remember who the other one was. Maybe it was something with Steven Universe. I don't know. But if Korra is one of their top three LGBT representations... Well, well, no. Korra is Nickelodeon. Oh, I'm sorry. It was Nickelodeon, not Cartoon Network. Yeah. And Steven Universe is Cartoon Network, so it wouldn't have been the same thing. But Spongebob is Nickelodeon. I don't remember who the third character was, but like that's a low bar for representation in 2020. Which, as far as when it was coming out... It was banned in, I think, Kenya when it came out in 2014 for showing a a LGBT relationship. So maybe we have come a long way in six years. It it remains depressing. I feel like this is a relationship that plenty of Republicans would see and go, oh yeah, they're gal pals. Yeah. Anyway, that's my complaining about that. Another interesting aspect of the Korra-Asami relationship that you can kind of really only see if you're looking also at like the broader This World universe, because I know there are some graphic novels, is while I haven't read the graphic novels, I understand that one of the other past avatars, Avatar Kyoshi, who's the female avatar before Korra, so she was the Earth Nation avatar who came before Roku, was lesbian, or at least is, I guess, portrayed as having female romantic partners. Which was in a book rather than a graphic novel as such. Right. Sorry. But so there's some implication that maybe all avatars are interested in women or maybe they're all bisexual. And the reason I say that is because Korra is at least implied to be bisexual given that she has the romantic relationship with Mako and Aang has a relationship with Katara. But there's never any sort of hint that maybe Aang might have had romantic feelings toward any male characters. And to me, that that indicates that there might be some relationship there with like our cultural comfort with same-sex relationships between women, but still less comfort with same-sex relationships between men. And that's something that's not new. I mean, um, same-sex relationships between men were illegal at points in time that it was never really considered to make it illegal for women to engage in romantic partnerships or anything like that, you know, or sexual behaviors. So I just like was thinking about that because you have this, I guess, greater flexibility to at least imply that Korra is bisexual or lesbian and that Kiyoshi is lesbian, most likely, or maybe bisexual, but there's not any similar hint of that with Aang, which seems strange to me because I think in terms of the idea of the Avatar and like this idea of like recognizing the humanity in everyone and being compassionate with everyone and like being so accepting and things like that, I feel like that would in some ways constitutionally mesh really well with being like bi or pansexual and not having that sort of delineation, if that makes sense. Not as like a value judgment against people who do have like a more narrowly defined attraction based on gender, but I just feel like thematically it would have worked really well, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm just trying to think about what we know about the past avatars and there's not a whole lot. Like there's a male waterbender that we know had a female love who got hit by the face stealer. Yeah. And we know Roku married a woman who he was in love with and had children with her. Yeah. 
There's no pressure on the Avatar to have children. No, but there's also no pressure for them not to either. Right. Yeah. And I think that probably tracks with, uh, I mean, we'll bring up Buffy again for some reason. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel that a lot of the relationships that you start seeing on TV tend to be lesbian relationships first. And there was a trend for a while that might still be going on, probably still going on, where even that starts with bisexuality. Like, um, with Buffy, Willow was in romantic partnerships with men first and then she was in a romantic partnership with a woman and then they labeled her as lesbian and i know there's been some discussion since then that that a lot of that was because of perceptions of the time where it was not as accepted to claim bisexual as an identity it was viewed as not really as much of a thing it's a whole problem in and of itself by erasure but even like Grey's anatomy they had several lesbian relationships that tended to start with a character who was bisexual who remained bisexual like through her entire run on the show but still like their introduction of homosexual relationships began with a bisexual character and then they've moved into having gay relationships represented after having had several lesbian relationships and they have a trans character at this point again after they had already laid down like a lgbt foundation with lesbian relationships yeah and I think that, like, earlier you might see... I, I mean, I'm, I'm just spouting off the top of my head at the moment. I need to go and do proper research. But I feel like you might be more likely to get gay characters earlier on in negative roles. There are a lot of gay-coded villains, yeah. Right. Yeah, and that dates back to those codes where you can't show gay people positively because it might be viewed as endorsement of that quote-unquote lifestyle but fortunately, we don't have to operate by those rules anymore. But they established a lot of tropes that then a lot of things reference or are influenced by. Yeah. I mean, and it makes a lot of sense because when you think about it, you see lesbian relationships first because they don't challenge traditional ideas of masculinity in the same way. And that's mm. the sensitive issue in, in the culture is masculinity and patriarchy. And if you enjoyed this conversation, check out our pre-ramble on Patreon discussing Gentleman Jack. <laughs> And, you know, lots of our other episodes because we talk about toxic masculinity a lot. I meant more specifically the LGBT thing. I mean, we talk about that a decent amount too. Anyway. So I think that's all we wanted to cover about The Legend of Korra. But I think the big question that this series asks is, what is the role of the Avatar? Hmm. I think the series implies that whatever that role is, it's been fulfilled and the world no longer needs it. Yeah. So what is it? I'm trying to sort of combining it with what this is saying after what is said in Last Airbender. Mm -hmm. And Last Airbender is very much about ending war, bringing people together. And it does so by bringing people together from every nation to represent all of those ideals. We know that at the start of Korra, a council has been set up that represents all of the benders, but doesn't necessarily consider the non-benders. I think... I would say through the all the stuff with bringing the spirit world in, it is about sort of balance and equality, which I think is why season one bothers me so much. <laughs> it's bringing it to a point where everyone can coexist. It's, it's interesting that you say it's been fulfilled. It's certainly at a point where the work has been done for the moment, but I think it's an ongoing quest. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that 10,000 years from now, there's going to be a problem. Yeah. So what I think it is kind of getting at 
is what is clearly stated at various points in Avatar The Last Airbender. The Avatar is the bridge between the human world and the spirit world. Sure. But more than that, it seems like the Avatar is supposed to be the bridge between everybody and sort of the force outside of institutional power structures that can mediate between them all and not be beholden to any of them. And so at the end of Korra, she's merged the spirit world with the mundane world again. So there doesn't need to be a bridge to do that. It's already always happening. And they've already kind of figured out an equilibrium there. And all of the nations are at equilibrium. And they've made changes to ensure that there is more representation in the various power structures so that people do feel like they have more of a say. And so there isn't an active need for her to mediate right now, at least not for a while. There might be later, as you said, like things could change, someone could disrupt that balance. But right now, they don't need a bridge between the human and spirit world, and they don't need an authority, like a moral authority, outside of the councils and the the national heads. Hmm. I mean, if you think about the flashbacks of the the way that the first Avatar happened, the reason that the first Avatar had to be a bridge between the mundane and spirit worlds is because he messed up the balance that already kept them in harmony. So then it was his responsibility to keep bringing it back into balance or trying to redress the imbalances. And that seemed to have been an ongoing process with each successive Avatar, including Aang, who's trying to redress the imbalance of the Fire Nation overpowering all of the other ones and imposing its will on everyone else and the imbalance caused by the Air Nation no longer existing. So now the Air Nation's back and the different communities are balanced again as far as elements. How do you take Zaheer's argument that the Avatar isn't necessary for that? I think in a balanced world, the Avatar isn't necessary. And Zaheer seemed to believe that it was the concentration of power in heads of state that had autocratic authority that caused the sorts of imbalance that then the Avatar had to keep redressing. And if you got rid of those concentrations of power, then you wouldn't need an Avatar anymore. Okay. I feel like we sort of gave the same answer to that. Sort of, yeah. yeah. I think so. Like, I think that he thought that we only needed an avatar to solve problems that we've already caused by having these systems the way that they are. If we don't have these systems the way that we are, then we don't need this other authority that is over everyone else, that everyone should be on a level playing field. Does that make sense? And I don't think he was quite wrong, but he wasn't quite right either, which I think is pretty well displayed in the way that that goes. Like, yeah. I think he viewed the avatar as like, Something that was treating a symptom. Yeah, that makes sense. And it makes sense that his storyline of trying to remove that appears after the bridge spirit world thing has kind of become less necessary. Mm-hmm. And I guess it also makes sense then that the end of the series is when there isn't just an easy way to bridge the spirit worlds. It, there's one in the center of the hub of human civilization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I'll buy that. That makes sense. And so does Shadow. Or Misty. I think that might have been Misty, actually. Hmm. I'm flattered. She's usually very critical. If you enjoy listening to our cats, uh, we will shortly or have just put out a video that includes a cameo from Shadow on screen. He's not necessarily happy about it, but he's there. So I think that answers the big question. But I think the bigger question is, which villain do you most agree with? Hmm. Probably Zaheer. I mean, and I think he's the one who is very clearly developed as being right in a lot of ways, at least philosophically, just methodologically seems to not recognize the hypocrisy in 
trying to autocratically institute the solution to the problem he sees when the problem he sees is that the people don't have enough power over their own destiny. Yeah, I think the wrong answer is Kavira. Yes, that is definitely the wrong answer. I I would accept any of the answers with various justifications. I think Zaheer is a good choice. He's shown as being very powerful, but sort of a very powerful philosopher. One of the things Mm -hmm. that makes him powerful is his ability to learn to fly, Mm -hmm. which is done through a sort of philosophical understanding. Yeah, to cut oneself off from all attachments in the physical world. Which, Which is to, a very Zen Buddhist thing. To be yeah. fair, one of those attachments is cut off for him. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's clearly established as having been powerful before he became a bender. And like his great power and influence is not because he's an airbender. It's he was a threat before. That's why he was in jail. Yeah, you know, he was ideologically such a force to be reckoned with that he was the leader of his cabal of Red Lotus people, many of whom were extremely powerful and skilled benders you know he was distinguished in that group without needing any sort of ability very like Sokka in a lot of ways actually just like his intellectual prowess is really what brought him up and then when he had airbending as well like just made him that much more unstoppable we did spend about half of that season wondering if it was going to turn out that Zaheer was like Aang's first child because he has so much knowledge of the air nomads and yeah it's a whole thing Mm-hmm. It was like a weird family drama or something. Yeah. Um, um, they didn't go that route. That would have been interesting, but they didn't go that route. I think Unalaka is the close second wrong answer to Kavira. Mm-hmm. Like, motivations and execution are all kind of fucked up. Yeah. But the general premise of, like, bringing balance is largely the purpose of the Avatar we were just talking about in the big question. Yeah. And I think that... I think Zaheer is shown to be the most right. I think that Aman, I agree with the movement the most. Yeah, but not him. Yeah. He's clearly taking advantage of the movement for his own ends. He doesn't really believe in the equality of non-benders. Yeah. Yeah. Zaheer, I get it. Like, I do think that the people should have more power and more of a say in the way things are done. But I also think it's incredibly arrogant to have that position and decide that the solution is to kill the heads of state yourself, like as one person, not as part of like a uprising and revolution, but you yourself as one person to impose the power of choice on people. Yeah. I don't know. You're then making, you're then making big choices for them all just the same. It's interesting that his, Their technique in the Earth Kingdom is to be a strike force that goes in and kills the Earth Queen rather than, say, starting riots in the Outer Ring that work in using the power of the people. Yeah, if you really believed in the power of the people, then that's what you would do. I think you'd organize people to push for a change in government and bring down the monarchy. I mean, we can argue that they may not listen to the people, but if there was a strong enough movement, it would probably result in more death. Mm Mm-hmm but it would also result in a stronger power of people and more likely a democracy would come up afterwards rather than whatever does come up, which I think is just chaos with Wu absent. Yeah, well, because if you just kill the head of state, but there's no infrastructure prepared to take over, there's no movement that already wanted to organize the government according to the will of the people, then you just have a bunch of confused masses who were not expecting to suddenly be able to make all of those choices like when you do that all you're doing is leaving a power vacuum for some 
cousin of the queen or, you know, nephew or whatever was what happens, declare themselves the new monarch. Like, that's not how you change the structure of the government in any way that's going to actually persist. It just seems very short-sighted for a cabal that's supposed to be very philosophically grounded. Yeah. Also, there's no legitimacy then to whatever government comes up because it was brought in from outside in that way. If the people rise up, then there's that mandate from the people to do things the way that they want. But anyway, we could get into that all day, I think. I feel like we spent a reasonable amount of this episode being critical, and I feel a little bit bad about that. But also, I mean, it's not that I didn't like this show. It's just I also had a lot of critiques of it. I think it's that there's more holes in how the story is told than there is really interesting ways the story is told. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of bits where the story is told well, mm-hmm. but there's not really much point in us talking about it because, like, yeah, season one, episode four, just solid story. That was good. <laughs> yep. Okay, good podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't be terribly interesting to go into. I mean, I, I certainly preferred Last Airbender to this. Yeah. Which is a shame because I was very excited about this because I heard it was gay. Ah. Uh. <laughs> <sighs> Okay, do you have any fun facts, tangents? No. Cool. Okay, so I've got a few fun facts. We talked a little bit about how Nickelodeon messed around with the production for seasons three and four, or the release of it. Mm-hmm. Apparently, when they were first making it, Nickelodeon actually suspended production for a while uh, because they didn't like the fact that Cora was female and the, the show had a female protagonist, but changed their mind after they saw the first episode and they were like, uh, okay. Kind of interesting. So. Ah. Right. <laughs> we mentioned Iroh a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it came up in our first episode, but Iroh was voiced by a guy called Mako, who passed away during filming and was voiced by someone else in season four. Um, so the fact that they named someone Mako in Legend of Korra is a tribute to him. Oh, that's sweet. I didn't know that. And then there are a few casting things that I think are fun. Kuvira is voiced by Zelda Williams, Robin Williams' daughter. Huh. Eska, Unalak's daughter, mm-hmm. that we, you may have just listened to us complain about in a bigger question, or that might be in the outtakes for patrons, is voiced by Aubrey Plaza. That's awesome. That totally works, yeah. Tenzin is voiced by J.K. Simmons, because we're steadily becoming a J.K. Simmons podcast. I swear he comes up in everything we do. <laughs> but the personal favorite one for me is the character of General Iroh, that I had to check this was right, I was pretty sure beforehand, is voiced by the same guy that voiced Zuko in the original series, Hmm. which lends me to be fairly sure that he's intended to be Zuko's kid or grandkid. It's never mentioned, but I feel that's likely. It seems Um, likely. But that actor is the person who played Rufio in Hook, which I don't know if you've seen. Yeah, it's been a very long time, but I know who that is. Go back and watch that. Is that a Christmas movie? Mm-hmm. Kind of a Christmas movie. Okay, those are my fun facts. Uh, do we have any late thoughts this time? I don't think so. Okay. Which means that in about 45 minutes, Sean's going to go, ah, I was going to say a thing. Thank you for listening through with this with us. Um, if you haven't listened to the Avatar episode, I do recommend going and checking it out. We also now do YouTube videos. So, you know, appreciate it if you would check those out. Maybe subscribe to our channel. It helps more people find it. Uh, we also do a Patreon where you can get more content. You can get access to our Discord where you can listen to us record live. 
Uh, we do pre-rambles. We've done ones on escapist fiction and the show Gentleman Jack. We do all sorts of things over there. They're like 20 minutes, so you can just listen to them on your lunch break. Even just a dollar of support on there really helps us to keep doing what we're doing. And it lets you join the Discord and listen to us record live. We, we've been seeing some nice growth recently. Um, we're very excited by it. Please continue to tell your friends that we exist. Thanks for listening to Ramblings. We hope that you will join us next time. I wonder if the graphic novels that there are for Korra are really gay. Mm. I'm sure someone will tell us. They probably are.